Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, posted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, a bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to House of Carbs wherever you get your podcasts. Special edition of the Ringer NFL show. I'm Kevin Clark here with Robert Mays. We're coming to you on a Thursday. It's a special episode because we're sort of hitting a mid-season break. We're going to hit the pause button on the season, and we're going to look at some of the storylines that have defined the first eight weeks, nine weeks of the NFL season. It's been a very interesting season, to say the least. Uh, probably the most interesting off-field season I can remember. And a lot of that off-field stuff has started to show up on the field and that's impacted basically every corner of the game, from ratings to contracts on down. We want to unpack what's been going on on one of the most complicated seasons in recent memory, both on and off the field and in the history of the league. Robert. Exactly. I mean, it's been a bizarre year, I think, both as a fan and as someone who covers the sport every single day. So today we're going to take a step back a little bit and we're going to try to assess what is the NFL in 2017? We've hit on this stuff, Kevin, pretty much every week You know, in our yep. two shows that we talk about. It's been a topic of constant conversation, but we want to take sort of the long term from 40,000 feet sky high view of this. And to do that, Brian Curtis is going to come and join us to discuss some of the relevant off-field topics that yep. you mentioned, Kevin, including player protests and the ongoing discussion about Colin Kaepernick. Claire McNear will also be here joining us to discuss player health and safety and their long-term effects on how we watch and think about football. One thing that this is going to be shaded by, there's there's two news items I found interesting. One came up on Wednesday via the New York Times. It's that Jerry Jones has hired a big lawyer, David Boyce, to essentially block Roger Goodell's contract extension. What's going to happen there? I mean, there's going to be a power play like you cannot believe at the top of the league at 345 Park Avenue, and it's going to be fascinating to watch. And that's a, that is a shadow that will cast over the rest of the season, and if you don't think it's going to be a major storyline, wait. The second thing is that Darren Rovell mentioned this uh, earlier on Wednesday, which is that through half the season, ratings are down 5.5%. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it's in line with the rest of television. Pretty much all ratings are down 5% across the board, across the entire medium of television. But what's interesting is that I've spoken to a lot of NFL executives over the past five years, and all of them have said they were impervious to the declines of television. When everybody else was, when flat was the new up, they were up, if that makes sense. And so for me, for them to be in line with the rest of television, that's that's something they're going to panic over. And so, yes, the NFL is very worried. There's going to be a lot of changes, and uh, it's, a, it's a very good time to look at the state of football. That's kind of why we're doing this right now. I mean, the NFL used to be this kind of perpetual money-making machine. It was going to yep. keep going and keep going. It had a mind of its own. And the fact that it stalled even a little bit is why we're having yep. this discussion at this point. Let's start out with the on-field stuff, which is the stuff we notice every Sunday and we've been yeah. talking about. And to do that, we're going to bring in our good friend, Danny Kelly. Danny, how are you? 
I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Of course, man. So one of the main storylines of the games on the field this season has just been how these teams seem so bundled together. Parity is at an all-time high. You look at just the way the teams are bunched in the DVOA ratings pretty much every single week. It's a reality that we're facing right now. Danny, how would you try to start and explain what's been kind of an uninspired state of play on the field this season? I think that you have to kind of start with the offensive line play. I think that's sort of, to me, the foundation of a lot of what's happening. I think there's tons of other reasons and and things that, that we'll get to, but I think you have to start with the offensive line. It's just you just see guys coming up from the college game that just don't look good. They can't play in the in the pro system quite as well as you'd hope. And there's a there's a big learning curve for them. And I think that's affected quarterback play. It's affected the way that teams play the game. I know that Kevin's talked about how completion percentage is up, but but yards per attempt is down. And, you know, this dink and dunk culture, we're going to talk about that. But I think it's all connected to what's happening up front. And I've written about this a lot. You know, I've talked to a lot of people about this. I wrote a big piece on the ringer last week just about the state of offensive line play in the NFL and why it's kind of deteriorated. And this yeah. is a discussion Kevin and I, Kevin and I have had, but it's a discussion worth having again because I do think it's one of the biggest stories in the league this year. And the people that I talk to, Everyone kind of has this theory. They all want a patient zero because it's kind of like any other <laughs> right. epidemic, right? It's something, it's like watching contagion. You know, how, why is Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> sick? It's one reason. Let's find it. But that's not how this has gone. It's so many things have kind of coalesced into this huge major problem. I don't want to yeah. spoil contagion, but wasn't it very, a very complicated <laughs> disease? That's probably fine. I mean, I don't remember. <laughs> I just unfortunately, I was just the one thing I can remember. I do remember, but it, and it was it was a lot of things coming together in a very unlikely scenario. So That's there perfect. it is. This is like contagion. <laughs> is Russell Wilson yeah, going to no, Paltrow no, in this I was, scenario? No, I was going to say it was like Eric Fisher. Paltrow's <laughs> Eric Fisher. Yeah, but Russell Wilson, the, the linemen aren't the ones getting crushed here, unfortunately. It's the quarterbacks. They're the ones that are actually being affected by the disease. Someone's getting so, crushed. So maybe Russell Wilson is Matt Damon <laughs> and, and Eric, you know, whoever his Reese Ohedebo, or what's his name, Danny? I can never do this. Uh, Odiambo. Reese Odiambo. He's Gwyneth Paltrow. That's fine. So <laughs> it, it starts, I think, with, for a lot of people with practice time. And that's yeah. the number one issue. And this is something we'll get into a lot. And Kevin and I have discussed the realities of practice time under the new CBA pretty consistently on our show. And we haven't really dug into the particulars of it. So the things that have changed are that in training camp now, you can't do two-day practice no two anymore. Days. One practice per day, the limit is four hours on the field. And that's a huge part of it. It's also 14 padded practices during the season. During the that's season. Crazy. So over that's the 17 crazy. weeks, you have to ration weeks, out 14 padded 14 practices. practices. So that's, that's a huge issue. And then it goes further. It goes into the spring. I mean, you have three phases in the off-season program. Mm -hmm. And in a couple of those phases, especially phase two, which is after like strength and conditioning, you cannot line up across from one another. (laughs) So for an offensive lineman that's 22 years old, he's never worked on how to find his punch, like landing points as a puncher working against another player. You can't even do that with a guy who's coming into the league. It's not allowed. So all of these tiny little things have kind of combined to hamper the development of young offensive linemen. And at the same time, it's hampered a line's ability to kind of come together because yeah. what Jeff Schwartz told me is that during training camp, that's when you would figure out how to block every front you could possibly face while running right. a line play. Right. So if you were doing inside zone and you were doing a combo block on a two technique and 
you screwed up the first time, didn't get your steps right, whatever. All right, you do it again, you get it right. Fine, that's two plays. Then the next play, the guy moves. There are a million different ways you have to block these, and that's the time where these guys would figure it out, and they right. no longer know how to do it. So, so continuity, me- anticipation, all of these things have gone by the wayside because there's just not enough time for these guys to work on it. You're telling me that when it looks like offensive lines are, are learning how to play with each other on the field, that that's actually what's happening? Like- yes. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. And it's it goes beyond that. It's little things. Kevin and I mentioned this, you know, just to each other, I think yesterday or the day before. Players have iPads now. Yep. So they don't watch film together. Nope. So these guys oh. prepare for games alone in the corner of a room or at home or whatever. It used to be the only place you could watch is with each other. Yeah, and it's a lot more independent study, for lack yes. of a better term. I mean, there are so many anecdotes I've heard where starting quarterback A will text quarterback's coach A and and say, hey, can I get a look at the Bengals' third downs? And and that guy might be on a beach in Cabo San Lucas. And and you're there and you're sort of up to your own devices. That's a maybe a net win because you're getting more information, but it's not the same environment. You're not getting coached on every single rep or whatever it is. And so it's it's just a little bit different. And that's no matter what, whether it's good or not, it's certainly changing the way football players view certain plays and how to um, identify film And stuff. especially a collective position like offensive line. It, right. it literally is guys working together. So you need to know, all right, we're pointing out and we're spotting this stunt based on this alignment and third down and whatever. Yeah. That's a collective pursuit. I mean, you have to do that together. So I think that the fact that that's happening less, that's going to hurt development of overall lines. I think it's really fascinating how long it's kind of taken this to come to a a head. You know, like the new CBA was, what, 2011? And it's been, you know, we're just past the halfway point of it. And I kind of just the the metaphor that I keep thinking of is like, you know, if you take a if you take a plant or a a tree or whatever out of the sun, it's not going to die immediately. It just slowly starts to drop leaves. And I kind of that's just like how I picture the offensive line play. Like, you know, the new CBA came in and it didn't like completely change the game immediately overnight it's just slowly chipped away and and, you know like taking the light taking the water away from that plant it's slowly starting to like you know wilt up and everything so i just think it's been really fascinating kind of seeing it all come to a head that i think that i think to me that's a big big part of it i remember as much as i don't watch baseball anymore i used to be a huge baseball nerd and i remember reading bill james when i was fairly young and he had a line about spending in, in baseball and the line was and I think about it all the time with the CBA is just because something doesn't happen immediately doesn't mean it's not going to happen eventually and that's sort of how I felt about the CBA is that we saw all these early returns and we were like oh okay the game's not that much different well this is what the game is it's it's you know completion percentage going up from 59% to 63% but yards per catch being down like no, there, when I wrote that a couple of weeks ago, the headline my boss put on it was literally how f- football stopped being fun. Yeah. And it's it's hard to argue that anyone's having fun with these sort of offenses. Danny, what else? What else has kind of stuck out to you outside of the offensive line play? I mean, I know what Kevin has said, especially about the completion percentage, all that stuff. That's totally relevant. But I mean, is there anything else specifically that's jumped out to you? I think that the other thing that is a big part of this is, and we've seen flashes of it. We've seen the league starting to, I think, embrace the college, like the quote college game, you know, the quote spread offense type thing. I think when you see the teams that are able to score so many points and and do so many things and confuse so many offenses when they adopt the plays and the types of things that these college uh, quarterbacks are doing, 
um, sorry, the rookies and young quarterbacks are doing in college and, and they can do it in the NFL and it actually works like, holy crap. Um, but I think a lot of teams are still really, really slow to do that. And it just still feels like a lot of teams are trying to fit a square a square peg into a round hole with their quarterbacks. Like they're asking them to do things that they're not comfortable doing because this is what we do in the NFL. And I do think it's starting to sort of evolve and there's a bigger acceptance for it and all that. But I think that it's still lagging a little bit. And I think, you know, over the next few years, it will, I think that'll change. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I still go back to the fact that the Dallas Cowboys draft board had Connor Cook ahead of Dak Prescott. Yeah. And they, they readily admit that it was because right. Cook played in a pro-style offense. That was last April. That wasn't 10 years ago. That was the 2016 season. Yeah. And that's still happening. It's real. We're putting a lot of this on players. You know, lack of uh, development, yeah. lack of time, everything else. And coaches are in a tough spot because of that. When you have less time, it's harder to be a really good coach, especially position coach. But I think overall, these guys that are the architects of this team, there aren't enough of them saying, how can I do everything possible to milk what I can from this roster? Yeah. And I think the best teams and the most fun teams, the ones we've liked watching this year, are the ones that have done that. The, the Eagles are a blast to watch totally. it's because they're doing so much crazy stuff. I mean, they're like, how can I figure out the weirdest possible junk to throw at this defense? The Rams are the same way. It just feels like the teams with good coaches have separated themselves so much because the league is so homogenous. And I don't know if that means we have a shortage of good coaches, if we're not finding the guys who are best set up to attack the game that way, but it just feels like it's a coaching problem as much as it's a talent problem right now. Three years yeah. ago, sat in a coach's office, and we were talking about the spread offense, and at that point, no one, no one was looking at the yeah. college game. And the coach said, you have to watch the college game because they're always three to four to five years ahead of the NFL. We end up stealing it, so you have to be on ahead of the curve. That coach was Andy Reid. Yeah. Wow. And I like that. <laughs> That's thank a good. That was a good. That was a good anecdote. Thank you, Perfect. Dan, thank you, Danny. And the best part uh, is Andy Reid is sixty years old. And I, I said, <laughs> I said to Andy, I said, "Can you expand on that?" And he sort of said, "You know, look, they're in a more open educational environment. They're not a closed loop like NFL teams are, where it's just people in their own building. They're meeting with more people. They're meeting with high school coaches. Yeah. They see. Think about how much, how much more variety a college coach sees in his day to day life than an NFL coach." who's only watching other pro tape and then maybe in, in the spring watches NFL That's true. Show. It's also born of necessity, though. I mean, I it's, say, it's ingenuity, yeah. but you're kind of pushed to that ingenuity by a lack of talent, by just a bigger swath of competition. Yeah. I mean, Urban Meyer coaches at Ohio State now. He didn't. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> He's trying to find ways. I had a long conversation with Dan Mullen, who... If if you didn't read the story, you can go back and read it. I wrote a whole story about the 2007 Patriots. And Josh McDaniels went down and met with um, Dan Mullen before the 2006 season when he was at Florida and Urban was there and they'd come from Utah and before that Bowling Green. And I said, how did you invent this sort of spread system that, that eventually everyone involved with Urban Meyer's offense became famous for? And he said it was literally because at Bowling Green, they had one receiver who could catch the ball. There you go. And so, and when you talk about necessity, that's what they're talking about. Like just, just the idea that it was like, okay, we have one guy, we got to move him around. So the entire offense is going to become flexible. The entire offense is going to be, you know, about giving them looks that confuse the defense and spread them out. And they're going to give it to the guy who, by the way, can catch the ball. 
Correct and me the best if I'm part wrong. about this is that Urban Meyer was the guy who coached Alex Smith, which is just amazing. Right. Like, we just I, came, I love, we love, just love came, that. We came full circle. <laughs> yep. I was going to say, it. correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't a part of the reason that college and, and high school and everything got into the spread game and started doing it so much is because they have less time with their guys? Like there's That's a, part there's, of it. That's a big part of it, yeah. There's a very regimented practice schedule in, college, in the college game, plus you only have a lot of, like if the guys are really good, you only have them for a few okay. years. Yep. So, well, there's something else, which is that it works, and <laughs> college <laughs> college offenses are under no obligation to to give the NFL the quarterbacks that look like the quarterbacks from 1986. <laughs> All right, Danny. At our core, I think you and I we're we're football nerds. Like right. we derive a lot of joy from the minutia of the game, and I and we talked about the issues this year; they're undeniable. But there are some things in the league this year that are also worth celebrating. It's not yes. all bad by any stretch. What has made the league fun for you this year? So I, I split this up. I, I put together a pretty pretty meaty list here of things that I've really <laughs> <Shocking>. enjoyed. <laughs> of things I've really enjoyed this year. And you can start with like... How much okay, time do we all, have? <laughs> this is going to be a six-hour podcast. Just read this Six-parter. whole thing up. So, first of all, obviously, you've got the problem this year where a lot of the superstars have gotten injured. You know, the mm-hmm. Odell Beckhams, the Aaron Rodgers, all that, J.J. Watt. Um, but there's still guys, there's still superstars kind of, you know, at the foundation. Like Tom Brady, he's 40 years old. He's still like one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. He's got, he's like at the top of almost every leaderboard or near it in passing. And so he's still there. Drew, B- Drew Brees is still doing amazing things. Um, you still got guys like Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown to watch. Russell Wilson occasionally does something incredible, and it's okay, Danny. Russell Wilson does a lot of incredible stuff. You don't have to apologize. Gotta play for that. it down a little bit. I gotta hide it. But um, and then I mean, just from there, there's this great new class. I think of of the next sort of generation of superstars that we're starting to see. Like Carson Wentz has turned into the real deal. Dak Prescott, underrated year. I'm writing about that today. He's he's just really really underrated. We haven't been talking about him as much totally as we should. Totally agree. Yeah, he's been really good the last like yeah. three or four weeks. It's insane. It's so good. Go from there. You got Jared Goff taking off. Um, Joey Bosa is ridiculous. You got Demarcus Lawrence in, in Dallas. Jalen Ramsey, Todd Gurley, Travis Kelsey. Those guys are all super fun. Will Fuller. I mean, obviously the the whole Deshaun Watson thing is a bummer, but like these are these are really really exciting young players that. That we're going to start to, you know, the, I think they're going to turn into like, you know, legit superstars in this league. And then like you got a rookie class that's got a ton of really, you know, this has been actually a really impressive rookie class, I think. Deshaun Watson, obviously, Dalvin Cook. I, I put those guys into the don't be sad, it's over, be happy it happened category um, for this year anyway. But then you got guys like Miles Garrett, Fournette, McCaffrey, who actually is second in the NFL in catches right now, which is I didn't realize. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore, Alvin Kamara, you know, the Saints whole rookie class basically has been really awesome. It's changed their season. I mean, it's made them contenders in a year. Changed yeah. their franchise. Yeah, totally. That's going to be up on the ringer today. I wrote about how I think that this is the era of the facelift contender, just in the sense that with how many rookies are playing, with how young the league has gotten, and with the parity that we see every year, a single offseason can make you a championship team. And that makes the league fun. I mean, the fact that the Eagles were able to go out and get Alshon Jeffrey, Timmy Jernigan, Patrick Robinson, and like Derek Barnett and Chris Long, and they're the best team in football now, that makes spring in the NFL awesome. It makes every draft matter. It makes the craziness surrounding free agency matter. So I do think there are ways to kind of 
drive and kind of build excitement about the league that there haven't been before. And the players are only one part of it. I mean, you got the, the maze. They'll speak to you because, I mean, obviously there's there's parity and, and some people think it's, you know, diluted and watered down or whatever. But at the end of the day, like, honestly, even the even the Bears are still in playoff contention right now. And we're halfway through the year. Like, there's like four teams that you could probably say are like, OK, they're done. But that's it. I mean, it's it's kind of insane to think that. I do think that's know, that is some people construe that as a bad thing. I do think there's a way to spin it in the other way, in the sense that so many teams are still around. And, and I mean, I you kind of wrote off Deshaun, not wrote off, but you just mentioned Deshaun Watson. It's like this is the type of stuff that these guys exist. Like Deshaun Watson is is here. Carson Wentz is here. There's no reason just be like, oh, I guess Carson Wentz is the next guy. Let's celebrate Carson Wentz. Like, why Absolutely. not? Yeah. The dude does something every week where it's just like, what the hell just happened? I was writing about him a couple of weeks ago. Like, I think it was like two or three weeks into the season, and I I saw a couple of things in his play, like where he would do like an escape, and I was like, oh my god, that looked like Aaron Rodgers. And I and I'm like, well, I don't want to be like totally hyperbolic and just be like you know, total fanboy or whatever, but like there's elements of his game where you're like, wow, that is like a superstar play. So that I totally agree with that. Like you have to, you have to really appreciate that. Can I say something about Carson Wentz? You he, has, can. he has something that I think is rare in the modern NFL, which is that he was not marked for stardom early on, like a lot of quarterbacks, because obviously he didn't even play division one. Um, and so he, he had, and this happens in soccer sometimes when, when there's sort of non-prospects develop into superstars. So he has a long paper trail of just insanely embarrassing high school photos. They're just <laughs> really fun that you just don't get right. Like, like most like mm. top quarterbacks are, you know, they're doing their hair when they're sophomores in high school, whatever. Like Carson Wentz has a ton of like bowl cut photos, <laughs> embarrassing, like baseball photos, tons of hunting photos, like without his shirt on, like really funny stuff. <laughs> and, and that makes him maybe the most advantage. fun thing about the NFL. Yeah, so far I don't want to see some like, over polished hey, guy from me. Mission Viejo. You know, I'm he's got you, LA magazine spread when he's 14. I don't want that guy. <laughs> I want fine. Wentz. I That's want Wentz cool posing me. in front of a pickup truck. That's the, I love that, but I also love the fact that like Jalen Ramsey had a Jordan contract when he was 22, and that he's part of the most fun no, defense in the league right now. That's on the other end is just as fun. That's yep. just as fun. I don't like like <laughs> the, I don't like the Mark Sanchez's of the world. Danny, thank you very much for doing this. Sincerely appreciate it. As always, we will be talking to you on all of our shows. Thank you very much, bud. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringers Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta, and they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's Make Believe Casino, where Sal makes up props on, on all kinds of things, sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now moving off the field, we bring in the ringers, Brian Curtis. Brian, thank you for joining us. Hey, boys. How's it going, buddy? I'm good. 
How is it the halfway it. point? This this feels like when remember when we were like a month into the Trump administration, <laughs> someone said it's a month. It's been a month. How has this only been halfway through the NFL season? <laughs> the 2017 NFL season has been going on for 37 years. Those memes, like you know, me in 2016 versus me in 2017. It's just me in like week three versus me in week nine. <laughs> I also just could have posted a picture of myself in each of those right. points, and it would have been hilarious. I've aged 20 years. Yeah, you didn't need like the Star Wars or no, or something. God. No, John Wick. That was a good one. John Wick holding a dog, and then John Wick bloodied up. (laughs) That was a good. That that was a good meme. All right, Brian, we got to start with the news because there's some news that you are from Dallas. You have a firm understanding of the Cowboys universe. Jerry Jones has hired David (laughs) Boyce. Star Wars universe. There's so many tentacles. So I mean, it's bigger. It's bigger. The Death Star has nothing on Jerry World. No. Um, so Jerry Jones has hired David Boyce to apparently block Roger Goodell's contract extension. You're sort of a Jerry Jones-ologist, I would say. Where does the Goodell-Jones clash go from here? Uh, it's a great question. I think it'll go probably as far as Jerry Jones can make it go. It's unclear how far he can go. This, is, this seems like he is trolling Roger Goodell at this point, right? We do not think that a lawyer can seriously stop Roger Goodell's contract extension from being granted by a body that Jerry has now been thrown off of, that he sort of wormed his way onto <laughs> as a non-voting member, right, and has now been tossed off of. It's I'm, it's the ownership version of sort of Colin Kaepernick's collusion case, which is and obviously the Kaepernick case has a lot more merit because they, they really are content. no, they really are colluding, but it's just sort of like it's 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 a it's a statement. More than anything. Yeah. And it, and you'd feel a lot better about it. There are some legitimate issues here, which is right. right. Goodell's power over player discipline, which we've talked about a ton. Right. Uh, the idea of the NFL trying and mucking up all these uh, efforts to punish uh, people accused or convicted of domestic violence in various forms. This is not actually that. This is Jerry Jones getting really, really mad uh, in, 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 it's Jerry Jones getting mad. It's also, I think, by the way, Jer- let's just be straight. Jerry Jones getting old, wanting to win another Super Bowl. And Roger Goodell took, he falls into the pot of gold that was Dak Prescott and Zeke Elliott. And then Roger Goodell is taking one of those guys away for six weeks. Right. And he's upset about it. And so he's decided now to retain a lawyer <laughs> last seen commanding ex Mossad agents, uh, against Harvey Weinstein's accusers. To go after Roger Goodell. I just don't. I mean, again, I think it's fun from the from the standpoint of let's watch rich people tear each other to shreds. But I'm not sure there's actually any moral content in this that I can get behind or even understand. It's hard to be on Jerry's side. It's yes. not a place many people want to be. There was such a weird theme narrative going around on Twitter on Wednesday that was like, oh, Jerry wants to be the NFL commissioner. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't want to the do last that. Thing he, but he, he, wants he, to do. he just wants to be angry. And maybe if Goodell gets ousted, then he puts in a, a Jones puppet or whatever. But I mean, I, it's not, I think this is just Jerry lashing out. That's Absolutely. that more than anything. It reminds me of all the Dallas Cowboy fans that have suddenly got interested in criminal procedure, much less <laughs> Patriots fans did over the last couple of years. Uh, and their interest in it will disappear as soon as it, this case is over. It reminds me, you know, there was that, there was that, Theory. Alex Perine wrote about this, about how one of the things that hurt the conservative and, and movement and the Republican Party is that Trump is sort of an extension of conservative media and Twitter trolls and all that stuff. Jerry Jones is now an extension of Cowboys Twitter. Like this is what this is what Cowboys, <laughs> C- 
Cowboys Twitter wants him <laughs> to be like, because, you know, the whole thing with Robert Kraft and 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 the Patriots fans starting to flake it. Every time you just tweeted like a neutral word about Goodell, Patriots fans would just be like, we got to we got to get we got to, you know, file this petition against Goodell and, and get him out and all that stuff. And. Jones is living that fantasy. And the truly weird part about that, I think, is that Patriots fans actually kind of like Kraft or mostly approve of Kraft. Right. To be a Cowboys fan, to be a member of Cowboys Twitter is to be in opposition to Jerry Jones, right. is to laugh at Jerry Jones, <laughs> is to say, oh, my God, did you hear what he said today? So to weirdly cheer, situationally cheer him on uh, is to me even maybe the perhaps the most bizarre aspect of this case. Wow. I mean, it's going to it's that is by far the most fascinating wrinkle of this NFL season going forward, because there's going to be boardroom fights. There's going to be proxy wars. I mean, it's going to be like every other corporation in America every time there's a crisis. I mean, that hasn't been happening in the NFL recently. We've had this continuing conversation. You've written a lot about uh, the NFL's decline or what's happening to the NFL. Right. Well, owners fighting. And especially somebody like Jerry Jones deciding to take on the commissioner and or the other powerful owners in the league strikes me as a big data point in, uh-oh, the NFL has a problem. It's amazing. Okay. Now to a more serious issue than Roger Goodell fighting with Jerry Jones is Colin Kaepernick. Now, Kaepernick is – he's obviously in a collusion lawsuit against the NFL, and there's one of two things happening. We've discussed this many times. Either he's actually being colluded against, and and that's probably happening, albeit unofficially, and in that case, it's it's a tough lawsuit to file – um, or, you know, it's just it's 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 32 owners and GMs and coaches who have come to the independent conclusion that Colin Kaepernick is is not worth the attention that it would bring to the locker room. Either one is pretty shameful for the league. Uh, how do you sort of view Kaepernick right now, Brian, in the grand scheme of the NFL? I view him as a martyr to a cause that has been, despite his status with the league, mostly successful. And I'm not sure I would have said that in week one of this season. Uh, because he didn't have a job and you would have said and I would have said, well, you know, here here's a guy who stood up for what he believed in or knelt in this case for what he believed in. And he was drummed out of the NFL. The NFL's whole idea was we don't we don't like this kind of thing. So you're out of here. Well, what's happened in the meantime is it's a lot easier, it turns out, to have a protest movement when you have cartoonish villains on the other (laughs) side of it. I mean, remember, the players kept reminding us this is really about police violence. Right. It's hard uh, for the public to wrap its mind around, I think, and support and then and eventually support something like that because it's not clear who the enemy is, right? right. Well, what happens? In comes Donald Trump in <laughs> September, right? Suddenly you go from six players taking a knee to more than 200 the next week, including Jerry Jones and other people like that. Um, what happens in October? Jerry Jones comes in and says he's going to bench anybody, even though no cowboy has ever knelt for the anthem ever. Uh, what happens a few weeks later? Bob McNair co- compares the players to inmates. Um, Another situation that made things worse because no Texan had ever knelt and then the entire team all but six knelt. Yeah, it seems like every single week this fire is restoked by the stupidity of somebody involved. These owners somehow make everything worse every time they constantly. So now you've taken a really difficult, uh, important issue, but a difficult issue for the public to get its mind around police violence. Right. And you've replaced it in the public mind with three cartoonish billionaires who are telling the players what to do in many cases your favorite players and it's not just me when i say when i say when we could argue about what that means but here's something amazing remember at the beginning of this and people were saying 
uh, protest movements, civil rights movements are never are not necessarily popular with the public at large. Well, October USA Today poll, 68 percent of people say that Trump was wrong for the to call on owners to fire the players. And 51 to 42 said the players port protests were appropriate. 51 percent of people think that players kneeling on the field during the national anthem is appropriate. Now, if I told you that before the season, could you have imagined that I a have majority a- of Americans who who and everyone thought this was a winning issue for Trump and for the and for the owners. That's pretty amazing to me. Not to correct your numbers, but I have a Daniel Snyder poll here that says ninety six percent of Americans think that the players should oh, all that, stand. Was that tweeted out by the yeah, uh, by yeah. Redskins uh, yeah. Twitter account? Daniel Snyder, if you if you didn't hear that news, listeners, uh, told a room of NFL owners that ni- the anthem standing for the anthem has a ninety six percent approval rate. So we have to trust the Suffolk poll or the Daniel Snyder poll. <laughs> Daniel Snyder asked. I would love to see poll. what sort of scientific environment that poll was conducted under. That was always. Like I think it was a straw poll. Here's the <laughs> here's the other thing for me. We're sitting here in a week uh, or day after the elections, the midterm elections or not even midterm off year elections in Virginia, right? Ed Gillespie, Republican, part of his campaign was sending out flyers with kneeling football players on. So imagine now again, and speaking of I know we can just do this forever with Trump and with even the NFL now. Yeah. Imagine if I told you, but imagine if I told you two years ago that NFL players would be a prop in a culture war driven political campaign alongside Confederate statues and the MS thirteen Central American gang. Like these three things would be lumped together as part of, as it turned out, a blowout loss political campaign in Virginia. And I think that I mean, that's just amazing. And also, by the way, that just shows me that the players are doing something when they get that kind of notoriety. And that's we you talk about just the cartoonish villains that are out there now. And I do think that helps. It puts this entire conversation in context for people. But under all of that, I mean, that's the ridiculousness of it. But the layer under that is that things are actually going on. I mean, I think that if the small victories in this are Doug Baldwin being able to have his voice heard about the Sensing Reform and Corrections Act, this is all a win for the players, even if it's had to come through all of this ridiculousness. I think that's kind of the thing, is we have this these characters and everything else happening above it, and then slightly underneath it, things are actually moving forward. And, and that's the kind of disconnect that's going on. Absolutely. Would, I, would you guys have believed, if I again, two years ago, that the NFL would be a home for social activism? Yeah, you know, a league know. that doesn't have much of a history of it, a league that has a really weak players union and has always had a really weak players union would be the kind of thing where not only can these guys talk about this, but maybe other people can come forward later and talk about other issues. That's big. Brian, last thing. If you're looking at the future, the rest of the season, maybe we'll go short term on that because the future is a much murkier question. What's the biggest story you're watching? In terms of protests and off the field stuff? In ter- yeah, in terms of all of this stuff, in terms of everything that is happening off the field that is turning this NFL season into a tire fire. <laughs> Two things. Obviously, what happens to Colin Kaepernick yeah. is fascinating. It doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't appear today if we were betting that he's probably going to I just don't understand. Play. I mean, it just speaks structurally to the NFL. Like you could you could try to end this by someone picking up the phone and offering him a contract. Right. Instead of Josh Jackson and instead, or something like that. 32 yeah. Josh Johnson. Josh Johnson, excuse 32 me. 32 NFL owners are just either nervous, scared. I, I don't know. I, I cannot get a read on this. I, so that's number it's one. what you said, though, Kevin. The fact that if they're doing it independently of one another, the idea that this group think among these people can independently go on speaks to just – how systemic, like the systemic problem with the way they think. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge, it's just a disease. I mean, it is a 
in step, we th- have just this backward way of approaching things disease. Yeah. So it's almost just, scarier if 32 people yeah, came to the same conclusion exactly. independently. I, I, I've been saying that for a while now. I, I think that, I mean, you just look at Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien says, gets asked about Colin Kaepernick and he says, well, he, yeah, he's great, but he hasn't played in a while. He signed a player, Josh Johnson. They believe their own nonsense, who man. Has hey, unbelievable. Josh Johnson. Colin Kaepernick has made the Super Bowl more recently than Josh Johnson has thrown an NFL pass. <laughs> the other thing I'd say when you take looking for it, do all these things that are in the air in the NFL that we're talking about, some of which are contradictory, some of which have nothing to do with one another, all add up to this collective idea that Roger Goodell and or the NFL are incompetent. Right. I mean, you have the one them them getting killed for being too lenient to domestic violence now being too harsh. They took too short a time to investigate this time with Zeke Elliott. They took too long. Reversals in court because they're happening during the season seem to be losses, even if we agree they're going to win the case eventually. Right. The Jerry Jones stuff. It just to me, it adds up to this large picture. Maybe the only the picture is important is the ones in the mind of the owners that just things are going really, really badly. And the NFL can't do anything right. (laughs) What a league. (laughs) <laughs> what a league. You know, it, it's, it's Michael you Lewis. Guys, you guys going to cover it for the rest of the season? Or we have to. Go to the soccer we have to. Like no, we, we tried the soccer thing. It didn't work. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Tried you know what? I think I feel like I'm out of the worst of it. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. Wrong? Can we can we, can we we record that and play it later? <laughs> the worst of it. <laughs> I, I, I want to come back week 15 yeah. and see that. Michael yeah. Lewis uh, was asked what the next short, big short is on Wednesday morning, and he said the National Football League. Wow. Wow, he's even he's he's off the bus. When's that book coming out? <laughs> wow, I had Good. I had a boss Good. I had a boss who once said he once said that every industry has a three pronged trajectory, which is boom, then bust, and then Michael Lewis. Does that mean I should feel like a guy at Lehman Brothers in 2005 yes. right now? I should be yes. looking for new new game employment. Like a financial reporter. Okay, Brian, thank you for joining us. That thanks. was fun. Thanks, well, guys. It wasn't thanks, that buddy. fun. It wasn't fun at all. It was depressing, but yeah. but but fun in a depressing <laughs> way. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you were listening to the Bill Simmons podcast this year. We stepped it up with the guests. I don't even have time to list all of them, but let's just say we have had. A who's who of A-listers, A-minus-listers, B-plus-listers in sports, pop culture, movies, music. I mean, where else can you get Kevin Durant, Steve Ballmer, Jimmy Iovine, and Charlize Theron in the span of six weeks? Nowhere. The answer is nowhere. You can find that literally nowhere other than the Bill Simmons podcast. We are in year 11. It's been an honor to do it. Hope you subscribe to the Bill Simmons podcast. Check it out. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've touched on the impact that specific injuries have had around the league this year. I mean, whether it's to guys like Deshaun Watson or Aaron Rodgers. But I think the concerns about player health go, I mean, I know the concerns about player health go far beyond freak occurrences like that. Head injuries, the long-term health considerations about the game have affected how we watch football and also just its long-term viability. And for that discussion, we wanted to welcome in the ringer's own Claire McNair. Claire, how are you, first of all? I'm doing all right. How about you? Uh, we're doing we're doing all right. You're, you're about know, to be it's, doing. It's been a it's it's been an interestingly toned podcast, but we're doing fine. You're about to be doing much worse, Claire. <laughs> Once yeah, at twenty minutes that. of talking about this stuff, you'll it'll be a gloom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We'll all need a drink when this is over. But okay, so let's get into it. I mean, Claire, would you say that considering player health has affected the way that we consume the league in 2017? 
Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. Um, I think there are two different things going on here at the same time. Um, And the first is what you just mentioned, that this year we've just seen a remarkable number of injuries to prominent players. And week after week, that has kind of been the story. Um, And the second thing is I think there's an increased sense of awareness, both among fans and players, about head trauma and CTE and about the NFL's failures on player safety over the years. And that's everything from years of denial about the link between CTE and football to trying to shut down research on the disease to revelations about the extent to which teams deploy and in some cases abuse prescription drugs. And, you know, it's, it's not like it's most of this stuff isn't new or specific to this season for the most part. Um, but more is coming to light and it just seems like hardly a week goes by without either a terrible injury on the field or a terrible revelation of some kind or both. So I think that let's unpack that a little bit. Talking about the fact that it used to be something that was swept under the rug. We didn't have the knowledge that we do now, just the prevalence of CT among football players and just threat health wise to players that are involved in the game at pretty much any level. So now that we do have that awareness, and you see a hit like the one that Danny Trevathan put on Devontae Adams. It's a primetime game. It's there for everyone to see. Mouth guard goes flying. It, it's a brutal, it's brutality. I mean, I mean, that's what it is. So we have this knowledge now. And even though hits like that have been legislated out of the game, which we'll discuss a little bit, they still exist. So now that we have this knowledge and that hits like that still pop up and we know that even these subconcussive hits have a ridiculous impact on these guys long term, how do we start to reconcile that stuff? How as fans are we supposed to watch this game with a good conscience and say, it's okay. It's okay the NFL exists. It's okay that football is still a sport. As guys go into it armed with the requisite information, is that enough? Is that enough for us to say it's okay that football still does this to people? You know, I don't know. I, I struggle with this a lot. I struggle with this as a fan. I struggle with, with this as somebody who watches um, football and enjoys football for the most part. Um, but kind of the more you know about this, the harder it becomes to to watch it and to basically support it, to put your money towards it. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure you guys saw this, but there was that study not too long ago of 111 brains from, of former NFL players and CTE was present in 99% of them to some degree. And it's, I mean, that's, that's shocking. That's horrifying. And there's, you know, for all the the recent efforts that have been made in the league with concussion protocol and slowly maybe getting better, you know, it's not clear that there is a way to to play this game safely in its current form. So I don't know. I um, I mean, you guys probably saw this as well, but a couple of months back, researchers at Boston University announced that they've developed a way to test for CTE in living patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not clear exactly when that will be available or what it will look like or, you know, how effective that would be, or, you know, there are no details about that yet, but I mean, that's, that's huge. That's huge because I think it's one thing to sort of know about CTE as an abstract disease and for players to say, Oh, you know, well, if it happens, it happens. And it's, it's another to know how common it is, how pervasive it is and, you know, whether or not you have it and whether or not, you know, you're at risk, Uh, you're at an early stage and it might get worse. We've talked about this, Kevin. I mean, we have, and and it's a game changer. It's a game changer because the tentacles go everywhere because, What happens if you have CTE when you're 19 years old and you're diagnosed with it? Does a col- does it become almost like some of the the you know a heart test or you know some of the um, they pretest you when you get to college um, for certain diseases and they say hey you can't play if you have X Y or Z at college football it happens all the time 
And does that does CTE become one of those things? Does, do high schools, for liability reasons, shut down their programs? I mean, we probably haven't given enough thought to what happens if we know that someone has early onset, for lack of a better term, CTE. And that's the thing is with that test, you know, the, the numbers you threw out there, Claire, the 99 of 111, that's a self-selecting group, right? Those, those brains right. were donated because those people had shown symptoms. And I'm not trying to diminish the impact and just the prevalence of CTE overall, but I think that you have to take in that, you have to take that into account when you mention those numbers. But if you talk about CTE in living people, that factor starts to go away. Those people haven't necessarily shown signs of CTE. You'd probably get a test just because you played a lot of football. And to find out you have CTE without having shown any symptoms, that's where this starts to have real wide-ranging ramifications. And the players that make these decisions now that say, I know the numbers, I know the reality, I'm still going to play. They didn't make that decision when they were 14. They didn't have this information. then. So like you were saying, Kevin, if high school kids can get a CTE test, if they have these numbers in front of them, do fewer players start to make this decision? I think that those are where the real impact in the game starts to come. Beyond that, it just gets into, does a player after his second contract at age 30 say, okay, I'm done. I have CTE. I mean, that, that, that then comes to that. If you're, I'm not saying, Should I, they? I, I don't want to have a value assessment here about Aaron Rodgers because I, I wouldn't pretend to know what's going on with him. But, you know, let's say he's 31, you know, a couple of years ago and he, you know, ha- has made $100 million in the NFL and he's, you know, knows what's going on medically now because you can prove it. This is in some hypothetical scenario. Do you just say, okay, I've made enough money, I'm gone. And then you have incredible superstars leaving at the peak of their prime. That, that, that could happen. Yeah, it absolutely could. I mean, we've started to see it happen more often. I know that it is not huge now right now. We're not seeing it with tons of players, but the fact that it's going on at all is notable. Chris Borland is a guy we don't talk about anymore, but he was going to be a star. He walked away at the beginning. And, you know, John Urschel isn't that, but he walked away early. A lot of these players are not a lot, but more and more players are leaving the game at a younger age. And I think that it seems like a small percentage now, but the fact that it exists, period, is worth paying attention to. Right. And the really troubling thing for me is I'm blanking on his name right now, but there was a player about a year ago who left the NFL and he said it was was not until he saw Concussion, the Will Smith movie about the kind of early research of CTE in football, uh, that he even really understood what what the disease was and how at risk he was, you know, it was this kind of vague abstract thing, you know, like, Oh, you know, maybe down the road, who knows? And seeing, so I, I just, I find myself suspicious of how well the NFL informs its players. And surely there, there are players and there will continue to be players who do know the risks and know them very well and continue to choose to play football. But I, at this point, I'm not sure I'm willing to sort of take the NFL's word for it. That kind of extends into the way the rules have changed. I want to talk about that a little bit as well. I mean, real quick, the, the player who retired after seeing concussion was DeBrick Shaw Ferguson. There you go. Right. Okay. So, you know, whether it's out of genuine concern for the players or a way to kind of acquiesce to growing public sentiment, like you mentioned, Claire, I mean, the rules have changed. They have been altered in the name of player safety. And Kevin, I think that, you know, we've been watching football for so long and Claire's come to the game a little bit more recently. How different to you is watching a football game now than it used to be? I mean, if we're trying to legislate these hits out and there is a way we can go further, do you feel like there's a way to preserve what football is in its current iteration while making it safer? Here's the problem. The problem is that when you and I started watching football, head injuries were not a big deal. Yes. And and when we would look at it, 
And we'd say, I remember, and I've told the story, I think, on the podcast before, but I remember there was a team official once who told me that um, when there was an era, and it was basically the era before 10 years ago, when it was, oh, thank God he got a head injury. It wasn't a knee. It wasn't an ankle. exactly. Oh, boy. And it wasn't a shoulder. It was a head injury. Thank God. And now we look at it and we say, I remember someone saying this once. It gets repeated a lot, which is, you know, we used to say, oh, he's fine. And now it's, oh, he's fine for another 20 years. And then what we just saw, will there will be a reckoning. And that's, that's I think, the, the gloom that goes over every football game now. And so you have, when you see a big hit, you know what's going to happen. And that's, that is the, um, the cloud that hangs over every big hit in football. And the problem is that, I mean, the big hits are the ones that we pay attention to, right? And that Devontae Adams hit that I mentioned. But... <laughs> Linemen, every single play, hit each other. Every single play. I mean, it is just sustained contact and sustained collisions over time. And that stuff will never be talked about in terms of like a broadcast in the NFL. You'll never have to see that and think, God, that was violent. But it really is. And those are the ones that I think are more problematic than the big hits and the ones that are never going to get as much attention. That's the problem here, is that at its core, football is a series of 60 small car crashes every single game. Yep. And I don't know what you do for, about that. You can't legislate that out of the game because it literally is the game. It's football. And that's the problem. The definition of football is violence. And then we start to get into the discussion again. If we know that, if that is just... The reality that we deal with, what is the onus on the league to explain that to players? And at what point is players taking responsibility enough for us to say, we're good. We can watch this. Good to go. I don't know the answer to that. Old, old, old football quote that football is not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. Dancing is a contact sport. And that's it. It's a collision sport. How do you fix a collision sport when you know what the collisions lead to? And Claire, I mean, we've talked about this. I mean, you've you've written about this. There is a way to just enjoy just whatever that element of football is. I mean, it's kind of part of the enjoyment. And at what point do you feel like in your own mind, kind of extricating those two elements is going to become difficult? I mean, I think it already is. And I I, I wrote about this last week, but I mean, I, I don't. I've been feeling it this season, especially, and I think it's, it's probably a mixture of, um, you know, these things becoming ever more apparent. Uh, and, and also I, I worry that it's something I'm thinking about more this season because the, you know, the games just haven't been as good and maybe I've just been more distracted in, in previous seasons and not sort of forced to think about this, but it's been there and it's, it is there and it's only going to get worse. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think that's kind of where we sit with this. I mean, this is going to be the issue about head trauma and just about player safety as we move forward. I mean, there are no quick fixes here and there's no way to kind of figure out where the lines have to be drawn. But having this discussion is important. I think trying to figure out where they should exist, what responsibility we have covering the game to inform people about its dangers, what responsibility we have to communicate the way that players are kind of processing all of this information. I think that's where we come in. And even if it is kind of hard to untangle, this is something we should consistently do. And I think that's why we're doing it right now, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the biggest issue. Anytime anything else happens in, in this sport, the protest stuff, 
um, the Goodell sort of squabbling over the power stuff, all of it will one day pale in comparison to what the health and safety aspect of the sport will Absolutely. do to the future of it. There are very, very serious issues throughout the entire league. But the thing, if if football dies, it's this. Yeah, absolutely. Claire, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for your time. Great to be here. Okay, Robert, before we get out of here, we usually offer some lasting impressions. So we'll do it for this podcast as well, just to send you out. And that's it. I do think football, first of all, is a great sport. And we really like it. And we, we enjoy watching it on Sundays. And that's why we do this for a living. Having said all that, I do think things are starting to change a little bit with the perception of the sport. I think the sport, you know, look, other sports cannot get 60 million people on a regular basis to watch their semifinal, which is what the NFL gets for a conference championship game in in, in most years. No other sport can even come close to that in America. And, you know, maybe the World Cup can, but that's that's certainly not yearly. Okay, so football will be the, the most popular sport in America for a long time. We're talking decades. But when it isn't, we're going to look back around now as the start of the cracks in it. Um, ratings did not go down in the past. That just didn't happen until two years ago. Uh, revenue has been spiking for years. And, you know, the NFL wants to get to $25 billion by 2027. They're halfway there. They'll probably get there. It's what happens after that that's fascinating to me. And so, we are in just the most fascinating era of the football business that has ever happened, maybe since Pete Rozelle inventing the Super Bowl, essentially. Um, and I think that football fans, a lot of them, you know, we hear from them a lot. They don't want to hear a lot about this stuff. They want to hear football analysis. That's why we're doing a special edition instead of just talking about <laughs> this on on a Tuesday or a Friday. We'll have football on Friday, and and you guys can enjoy that. But I think that football fans need to, need to pay attention to this stuff because it will impact the on field product. Whether that's you know the, the the talent pool, the amount of people who play the game, the amount of people who retire from the game, the amount of money there is to go around for the players. I mean, if revenue goes down in 15 to 20 years, that impacts the salary cap. That impacts everything. And so I think that people see a divorce between on-field and off-field stuff. And I think that as this goes on, those two things will merge. And I think that's one thing NFL fans need to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there have been times this year when football has been tough to love. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's felt like an act of drudgery to kind of engage with some of these primetime games, especially (laughs) with that in mind, though, I, I love football. I mean, it's the game has meant so much to me over such a long period of time. And I think that if you watch me watch football, if you've ever been around me as I've done it, and that comes through. I mean, every week I have a segment in my Monday recap called the line play moment that made me hit rewind. And that's not a turn of phrase. I mean, I literally stop and go back and I make people stop and go back when I'm watching it with them. And I feel like even with all this stuff in mind, as the on-field product has taken a step back, as everything about the game and the conversations about the game have kind of left the field of play. That is the thing I've always gone back to is that the tiny moments and the ins and outs and the gears of how this game works and the greatness that goes into the game's stars are things I'm always going to clamp onto. Watching that clip of Lane Johnson tossing Von Miller on the internet this week was fun to me. I'm always going to like that because what goes into that moment is beautiful in my mind. The fact that he has to know 
what Vaughn is going to do. He has to feel that he's trying to spin back in order to do that. There is a such a complicated and just huge list of stuff that goes into tiny little football moments like that. And I've gotten a lot of them from the Eagles this year. I think they're the team. Run pass options, Fletcher Cox and Derek Barnett playing games on third down. I think that even with all of the complicated, problematic elements going on around the league right now, it is a beautiful sport that has so much worth loving about it. And occasionally those things are hard to dig down to. And we're going to do our best. That That is our job. We are here to teach you about football and show you some of the things you may not. And among all the other things that are going on, I'm still going to try to do that because that is where I derive a lot of enjoyment from this. And even if it's felt like a chore sometimes this year, there still has been plenty of enjoyment. And I feel like we're going to get a lot more of it. So that's where I'm sitting. I, I still love this game and I'm still very excited to teach you guys about it. Could you imagine how much more you'd love the game if you weren't a Bears fan? I really can't. It's something I think about every single day. And uh, I choose not to uh, really sit in that thought because I, I don't think I can handle it. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.